welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. It's good to be with everyone today on Chip Webb. And before I begin, let us briefly pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all your people's hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as some of you know, perhaps most of you, This last fall was a tumultuous time for our family. I had a brain biopsy on October 4th that led to five other health crises in succession over a two and a half month period. And on October 19th, less than a week after having a heart attack that was caused by the biopsy, we had to go to urgent care after an ultrasound of my arm revealed blood clots. We waited a while for a doctor, And when she finally did appear, the first words out of her mouth in an anxious voice were, I don't know what to do with you. You have so many health conditions, and we almost never see anyone with as many conditions as you. I have to arrange a consultation with many different specialists and get them to agree on what we can do with you. That will be very difficult, but I'm going to do everything I can. The rest of the day was marked by long periods of silence without any word from doctor or nurse. Um, Without any word from doctor or nurse, excuse me. Mixed with occasional just as bad or worse news, including the doctor's assessment that a hospital would not be of further help. I was terrified. And thinking that it was thinking that it very possibly would be my last day on earth, and I even texted Father Morgan to that effect. Because I didn't know how successful the doctor would be at contacting all my many specialists, I eventually wrote one to ensure that she knew what was going on and mentioned that I was concerned that the urgent care doctor didn't seem to know what to do. The... uh, I... But what I didn't know at the time was that when you send an email to one of your doctors, all of your doctors can potentially see it, and the urgent care doctor had been added to my list of doctors. Later in the day, after having successfully consulted with all the needed specialists and prescribed me with new medicine, that doctor came back and gently confronted me about the note. She also made reference to her faith, which without her saying explicitly, seemed to be Christian. I had to apologize and ask for her forgiveness, and she did so. She granted me forgiveness. In my fear, I had taken what she said and interpreted it in probably the worst possible light. It was in many ways an understandable error on my part, and was far from the only time in the fall when I I saw my life so imminently threatened. But I still had to conscientiously recognize the sin the wrong I had done, and asked for forgiveness. 
Well, here at Corpus Christi, we're now in the second week of a sermon series focusing on forgiveness. And forgiveness is at the heart of Paul's message to his audience in the Acts passage that we read this morning. Let's listen to the words of Paul again from verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins was at the heart of what Jesus commissioned his apostles to do after he ascended, as we see in John 20, 23. But how is that proclamation possible, and why should forgiveness of sins be proclaimed? To consider these questions, let's first look at the rest of the message Paul gave to us in the Acts passage that we read this morning, then jump over to our gospel reading from John 10. And in these readings, we implicitly find encouragement to do two things. Number one, believe and apply the truths of the Christian faith. Number two, trust in and follow Jesus as our good shepherd who offers us forgiveness and accompanies us through all the days of our existence. How, meaning in, in this case on what basis, can forgiveness of sins be proclaimed? In Acts 13, Paul recounts basic facts about Jesus' death and resurrection. He mentions how Jesus was brought by religious leaders to trial before Pilate, that Jesus died on a cross and was buried, and that he was resurrected and seen by many witnesses. As a church, we recite most of these truths during our baptismal services when we recite the Apostles' Creed. Then we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. And it is the last item, Jesus' resurrection, that is most important for Paul in his sermon. To Paul, what God promised to Israel is fulfilled now through Jesus' resurrection, as we see in verse 33. He goes on to link three Old Testament processes, excuse me, to three Old Testament passages to Jesus' resurrection. The first one, Psalm 2-7, shows us that Jesus is king and fulfills promises made of the kingship related to David, Israel's most famous king. But Jesus is greater than David because he is the Messiah and God's only begotten son, as it says in verse 7. And he rules the universe rather than one nation. The second passage, Isaiah 55.3, shows that God's covenant with David is ultimately secure because Jesus, David's physical descendant, has been resurrected. And then Paul cites the last passage, Psalm 16.10, because its promise about a holy one not facing death is also fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. So when Paul proclaims the forgiveness of sins in verse 38, it's because Jesus' resurrection fulfills manifold promises that God made in the Old Testament. That's the basis on which forgiveness of sins can be pronounced. And it's good to remember during this Easter season that what we believe about Jesus' resurrection and God forgiving our sins will change our lives. As we considered in last week's sermon by Father Morgan, Paul was made into essentially a new person when he encountered Jesus in a blinding light on the road to Damascus. 
His life was redirected, and he moved from being a persecutor of Christians to a sometimes persecuted apostle, Jesus Christ, who spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection, even though he did not encounter the resurrected Jesus in the flesh the way the other apostles did. What Paul came to believe and apply in his life made him into the Christian who wrote most of the New Testament. The same is true is also true of us as we believe and apply the truths of the faith in our own lives. Our lives will be changed. So we are to believe and apply the truths of the Christian faith. But why is forgiveness of sins so important to proclaim? For help, we can look at some verses from our gospel passage and related biblical background on this Good Shepherd Sunday. The imagery of sheep and shepherd is common in the scriptures. The same David whom Paul referenced was a shepherd before he was a king. When I first started to know God at about age eight, I read a Bible for children called the Children's Living Bible. Near that Bible's beginning, I was captivated by a painting of a young David as a shepherd, sitting with his sheep, gazing up at a starry night on the right-hand page next to Psalm 23 on the left-hand page. Now the scriptures tell us that David was a faithful shepherd watching over sheep. But Jesus is an even more faithful shepherd of our souls. And in our gospel passage, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, were two of the earliest verses I learned to memorize in my college campus ministry. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. Let's think about these verses for a minute. We who follow Christ listen to Jesus. As we talked about in last week's formation group, for those who were there, we come to him. We come to him at first without full knowledge of what he will call us to do or be. But we hear his words, perhaps through preaching, perhaps through reading the Bible, perhaps through a friend, in some cases from testimonies heard um, from through dreams or visions. Either quickly or over time, we respond to what he is saying. For some of us, there is a moment of decision when we decide to turn what the Bible calls repentance toward him. While for others of us, that process happens imperceptibly. But for repentance to happen, we recognize that, to paraphrase Isaiah 53, 6, as sheep we are far from the shepherd, and we need the shepherd. And God has made a way to come to him, for us to come to him through the death of Jesus. We need forgiveness of our most fundamental sin of being separated from God. So we repent and we turn our lives to God. For some of us, there is at the same time or later a point where we will consciously dedicate our lives to following Jesus and accept his lordship over our lives. And a public profession of faith is in large part the aim of the rite of confirmation in the Anglican Church. And then throughout our lives, we follow Jesus, but we regularly sin by missing the mark 
in loving God and loving other people, to use the two broadest categories. And we need forgiveness of our sins. Those sins can take on myriad forms. But as a result, as Christians, we listen to, receive forgiveness from, and are transformed by Jesus throughout our lives. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, I know them. Last week in the formation group again, Father Morgan was speaking when suddenly a high-pitched wail was heard from one floor above. Father Morgan said, that's my son Cole. I know his voice. And excused himself to check on Cole. If those of us who are fathers can easily identify our children's cries when multiple children are present, how much more does Jesus hear us and know each one of us intimately and individually? And not only does he know us, but in verse 28, he declares that he gives us the gift of eternal life and he promises protection. Now, I came to know that protection in a new way over the last seven months or so. Things got worse after the event in late October that I previously described. In fact, six months ago today, I was rushed to the hospital for what turned out to be a hematoma that almost totally immobilized my left leg. And the following two months away from home were divided between two hospital stays and a rehab center and were filled with very dark days. To say that I was scared would be an understatement. As new health crises kept, kept accumulating, death often seemed imminent or at least potentially not far off in the future, and long-term negative health consequences seemed unavoidable if I survived. Not to mention vexing issues with my workplace disability and insurance. I had already lived with multiple chronic illnesses, faced quite a few mortality threats, and learned several mortality-related lessons from God in years beforehand. But this time, it really seemed like the cords of death were entangling me, to paraphrase Psalm 116. I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which is the painting by George Innes from 1867 that you should be seeing on the slide. Can you see how dark and craggy the landscape is? That's what it was like for me. Trust in God almost totally evaporated, at least at two regular intervals. I found it almost impossible to see Jesus as my good shepherd. In the painting, you can see the individual staring at a cross breaking through the clouds. But my eyes all too often were not on the cross. Instead, my sight was cast on metaphorical earthquake cracks that kept opening underneath me. And I was seriously afraid, seriously afraid, that my faith would fall into one of those cracks and be lost forever. But at the end of the day, my faith survived without serious detriment. There are many reasons why, and I've written a fairly long piece that is part of a series I'm writing about living with chronic illnesses and threats to mortality. But the most fundamental reason is that Jesus miraculously and mysteriously preserved my faith when from all human considerations and even some spiritual considerations, it should have failed. His promise of protection proved good in preserving my faith. And 
connected with Jesus being a good shepherd is they offer forgiveness through his church. Until just over a year ago, I had never taken advantage of our confession right, which is called the Reconciliation of Penitents in the 2019 Prayer even though I had longed for it for almost three decades. That changed on Holy Saturday 2021 when I first confessed my then-recent sins to Father Morgan. I have had three more confessions since then, including a life confession last October, where I confessed, where I confessed the sins of my entire life in broad categories due to my fear of then-impending death, or what seemed to be then-impending death. And a confession and a confession of lack of faith during the rehab center period a few months ago. This rite is a pastoral one, where although the confession is not private, the priest is sworn to secrecy. Yes, confession is in one sense a private practice between an individual and God. We should all do it regularly, since we each sin many times daily. And confession can be made with trusted Christian friends. I have done that quite a few times in my life. But there can be a joy and a peace that comes from hearing that your sins are forgiven by the church. It can also be beneficial as the priest who hears the confession listens intently and offers spiritual counsel. It is not a requirement in Anglican churches. The standard saying is all may, some should, none must. But it is a gift God has given through his church that is available to us. So we all need forgiveness that only Christ can offer. But there still might be a nagging question to address. Can we honestly, honestly say that Jesus is a good shepherd? If we go through cascading trials that mostly have no apparent benefit, and Jesus seems remote from them, is he good? If we live in a time of war or an economic downturn, is he really good? If we have children who suffer from various difficulties or afflictions, or if we watch family members suffer as their lives slip away, is he truly good? And if our fortunes decline and go from 100 to zero, in a very short time, a breathtakingly short time? Is he good? Is he really, truly good? The Christian answer is a resounding yes, even when the world seems to crumble around us, or even when it actually does crumble. Jesus is good, and he is worth following. Jesus will lead us in ultimately good ways, although we might never understand why he leads us the way he does. There's a hymn that talks about this and is based largely on Psalm 23. The King of Love, My Shepherd Is was written in 1868 by an English-Anglican clergyman, the Reverend Henry Williams Baker, who wrote many hymns. There, um, we're going to sing um, a... Uh, shorter version of it later. But for now, um, I just wanted to reference the original hymn um, from 1868 with its six verses. And I'll read out this part of it here. It starts out, The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. His goodness faileth sometimes? No. 
Is goodness failing all the time? Forbid it. His goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his and he is mine forever. The, the hymn writer then goes into good times of life where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth, and where the verdant pastures flow, grow with food celestial feeding. A third verse that's sometimes left out talks about sin. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. We sin, but Jesus is always faithful to seek us out and to bring us home, metaphorically speaking. Interestingly enough, it is said that Baker, the writer of this hymn, that he, that he muttered this verse on his deathbed. The fourth verse, in death's dark veil, I fear no ill with thee, dear Lord, beside me. Thy rod and staff, my comfort still. Thy cross before to guide me. The cross, which I did not see too well last fall, before me, as in the, as in the painting. And notice that on the Death Star Fail, this is in the middle of life. This is not the end of life that he's writing about. This is just in the middle of life. There are times of goodness in verse 2 and times of darkness. Very much darkness and dark in verse 4. Verse 5, Thou spreadest a table in my sight, thy unction grace, grace bestowing. And oh, what transport of delight from thy pure child's glory. A banqueting table set for us. Perhaps an image of the heavenly bank banqueting table um, at the end of time. But for us as Christians now, it calls to mind perhaps the years that we receive every week here at Corpus Christi. And so through all the length of days, like goodness faileth never, good shepherd, may I sing thy praise within thy house forever. Again, thy goodness faileth when? How much? Never. Never. And beyond this life, the Christian view of time extends into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. Today is also the optional commemoration of Julian of Norwich in our Christian calendar. Julian was a 14th, 15th century Christian English mystic who wrote about several revelations of God that she called showings. Her most famous quote is, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Um, you can find allusions to it in literature, including at the end of the Harry Potter series. Um, but this quote actually comes from a revelation Julian had in which, disturbed by the problem of why sin exists in the world, she asked Jesus why sin was allowed. According to Julian, Jesus responded ambiguously but encouragingly to her. Quote, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Whatever we might think of Julian's revelations, the hope that all shall be well clearly applies to the future restoration of the entire universe for which we as Christians wait. And we were provided a glorious picture of the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe in today's New Testament reading from Revelation. 
So pulling everything together, Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our forgiveness of sins. We are to believe and apply this and other Christian truths in our lives. Jesus is also our good shepherd who offers us forgiveness for first our separation from God and throughout our lives our sinful behaviors related to loving God and others. We are to trust him as he guides and accompanies us through all of this life and beyond. He is also the king of love, as in the king of love my shepherd is. If we want to define love, we look at Jesus. And his goodness fails how often? Never. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.